Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Jutta Eckstein. Based in the city of Braunschweig in Germany, Jutta is a consultant, trainer, and coach with 20 years' experience helping teams transition to and improve their agile processes in areas like product and project development and advanced object-oriented design, amongst many other things. Jutta is the author or co-author of four LeanPub books, including and, and other books as well, actually, including Diving for Hidden Treasures, Uncovering the Cost of Delay in Your project portfolio, and company-wide agility with Beyond Budgeting, Open Source, and Sociocracy. You can follow Yuta on Twitter at Yuta Eckstein, and you can check out her website at uh, jeckstein.com. Or I guess, as you would say in German, jaeckstein.com. Is that correct? No, we would say uh, J. Eckstein. J. Eckstein. Okay. Well, thank you yes. for that correction. Right. Yeah. Um, in this interview, we're going to talk about Yuta's background and career, professional interests, her books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience as a self-published author. So thank you for being on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. Um, it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for taking time out of your evening uh, there in Germany, even though it's the morning here in uh, the West Coast of North America. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up uh, and what your path was through your education and how you eventually got into your career. Uh-oh, how much time do we have for that? Uh, well, um, sometimes <laughs> these interviews take an hour and a half, sometimes they take 15 minutes, but it, it well, I'm, what yeah. you want to say. Yeah, I just think about that part. Um, yeah, well, so I started off actually um, to become a teacher, a school teacher and for sports and for artwork and in germany it's kind of a, a funny thing how it works how how teachers are employed or how yeah when they are educated so the thing is that typically it's every few years the so maybe every five or seven years the the government discovers that well everyone is going to be retired and therefore we need really urgently new teachers and in the time in between they are not employing any teachers and so then every so there's always this wave where then people the government all of a sudden recognize oh now again everyone is retiring what's wrong and so and if you are done with your studies in between, which was the case for me, then you don't get a job. So, and, and I was in the down wave where they thought, well, they have enough people. So I thought about what, what, what can I do? And um, um, still trying to make it short, but I was working in a pub at that time. And there was like one of the guests saying, oh, I know a really cool thing that really would be great for you. And that thing is called product engineering. So um, studies as well at a university. And so I looked into that and what uh, intrigued me was uh, that they had a focus on, oh, well, the students could put a focus on industrial design. And that sounded like, well, that would be for me because of the artwork I did before in that other studies. And so I applied and I, I um, was uh, accepted for in the university and I started there and actually there then because it's an engineering um, studies in the first uh, two semesters I for the first time saw a computer and worked with it well I'm, I'm a bit older so it's 
<laughs> way back then. So it wasn't really that everyone had one, but still. And I got so excited about that. I got really excited about that. And I liked programming really a lot. Um, so I, well, first I started classically with Pascal at that time, and then C++ and Assembler. And especially Assembler, actually, I liked a lot because you can see the results right away. So that was really cool. Um, yeah, and and then I thought I I kind of would have liked to change and not finishing product engineering, but doing computer science. But then um, I also thought, well, it's already the second studies, and maybe I should just hang on there and hang in there and just finish that and and get it done and try to make a focus in that product engineering field on developing software, which I then did. So, and then um, the, the really the, the key focus was on C++ and uh, I worked with that a lot. And also then my first job was around C++. So that's kind of how I, I got into that field by being an engineer, but being excited about what's going on there and, and how creative it is really working in in programming so you well from, and you went from education yeah. to engineering um and, right and then did you did you work for um companies before you became an, eventually became an independent consultant yes i did so yeah what was your first job like um so my first job was let me think about it so the right yeah so the the one thing was that company already said like we really like that object orientated stuff so which was kind of new at that time so i'm well it's not that they work with similar so we're not talking about 67 right but more like the early 90s or so and so uh, that was for me a reason going there because I really wanted to do object-oriented programming. So that's why I applied there for the job. And it, it was easy to get a job anyway. And um, uh, so we just developed all kinds of applications for customers. And my specialty at that uh, in that company was actually working with object-oriented databases, which never really took off, but people thought that this will be uh, the big new thing and relational databases are gone, which was proven wrong over time. But that's kind of, um, yeah. Where, where I was sitting on and focusing on. And so we did, um, for example, for uh, power plants, we, we used uh, the object or in the database to capture all that information or in the medical area for the X-ray um, pictures because object-oriented, it's kind of easier to keep it together as one, one object, really. Um, well, and then I moved on to a different company, and this was more, uh, well, almost like a body leasing thing. So just everyone who worked there was sent to a client and worked with that client and developed software with them. And there, the first project they sent me into was um, working with Smalltalk. So... I learned small talk programming and that kind of screwed me up, I guess, because I liked it so much that I never wanted to go back to anything else. 
And when they put me on the next project, which was C++ again, I said, I, I can't do that anymore. I just fell in love with small talk. <laughs> yeah. And which then led me to um, work for a small talk company. So Park Place, that was kind of the company at the time, having like the, all the environment and the compiler and stuff for, for small talk well interpreter and um which also led me to um well looking at the the way we are working in small talk and and going to different kinds of conferences in the object oriented field but also into patterns which then just started coming up and, and maybe now i make it a little bit shorter because the thing is that all the actual stuff actually has two main roots and these two main roots are small talk and patterns because they're like XP and Scrum. So both have been first described in the small talk world and described as a pattern language. So similar to the design patterns, uh, the gang of four patterns. So these have been also described as pattern languages. On, and so in those communities, in the small talk and patterns communities, that agile stuff, which wasn't called agile at the time, just came up. And that, and because I was there anyway, I heard about it. And that was kind of mid and 90s then. Yeah. And that's kind of when you went independent. That's very true. Yeah. So my, I think, yeah, right. In 98, I, I went independent and I think it was like 97 when I heard, first heard about XP and, and then Scrum later on as well. Right. Mm -hmm. being extreme, extreme programming. Extreme programming. Yeah. Can you actually yeah. talk a little bit about what that is and what maybe, I mean, an, an interesting experience you had with that? Uh-huh. So the, the interesting thing, first of all, is ju that just yesterday I returned from the XP conference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, which is still existing, which is actually the very first conference in the Agile field that has started in 2000 in Sardinia. So an island in the Mediterranean. Very nice. I bet. Um, yeah. And uh, this year we were in Porto, Portugal, also very nice. Um, and extreme programming actually, well, you ask me and therefore you get my answer, is Scrum plus more stuff. So Scrum is kind of an abstract of XP. So XP has the like a... a how do you start planning and work as a team and how to involve the customer and, and kind of that stuff and, and writing stories. Plus it has uh, many developer practices, which are now making it into Scrum as well. So for example, test-driven development or pair programming, these are classical XP practices. People now talk about them as well and just saying, okay, these are, I think, they say more, mostly like agile practices that are helpful if you develop develop a Scrum, right? Uh, and what was your first um, encounter with uh, agile practices? I mean, you, you you mentioned before that it kind of more or less existed before it got named. Yes. Um, and uh -huh. so, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what that experience was like going from, I, I would imagine, a sort of classical waterfall experience to an agile mm -hmm. workplace. Mm-hmm. 
So when I first heard about XP, and I think it, it, it must be some at some point around 97, I just thought, well, this is a very natural way to developing software. It sounds way more, well, made much more sense to me than whatever I learned at the university. And so in the project I was on, we right away tried some things. Other things we did anyway, you know, in, in small talk, there was for a long time um, that thing that was called the refactoring browser developed by Joe Yoder, who also was at the XP conference last week. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so some of the people are still around. Yeah, so we had those tools or S-Unit, the, the TDD tool for Smalltalk, which is now more known for Java, J-Unit, right? So we had a lot of that, those things there already, but we didn't use it with the discipline that now the agile methodologies are kind of asking for and, and are then helping for a team to be successful together. So, for example, we didn't do much pair pro programming before, but we tried that then right away when we when I came back from that, from that conference and, and said, like, oh, let's try that, let's do that. And um, so... That was good. But again, also that environment, the small talk environment just allows a lot of these things. So it was kind of a natural fit. Uh, it's really interesting. One of the, um, you know, as, uh, you know, Mark Andreessen famously said, and as I think you quoted in one of your books, software is eating the world. Um, uh, and so how software is built is actually a really important part of our lives in a way that I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with it might not really appreciate and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about specifically what, what is pair programming? How, mm -hmm. how does that, if someone, if someone's building the service that I'm going to be using in a pair programming process, what's, what's happening? Mm -hmm. So what's happening is that we really, so if we are together in a team at the same, in the same space, so I'm not talking virtual right now, Right. Then it means we are sitting together in front of a computer and we are sharing, we have one keyboard sharing it sounds a little bit weird because the thing is like one person is typing and the other one is kind of overlooking what's going on and we are talking about the, the, the metaphor that's used, it's the driver and the navigator. So the, the driver is the one sitting at the keyboard typing and the navigator is more looking, oh, what, what might happen here or we shouldn't forget about this. And the roles are switching very quickly. So it's not that if I would be the driver, I would be this for the whole day and you are the navigator for the whole day. It's more like and often in like some two minutes or so, we are changing those roles. So it's very, very quickly. And actually, it's a it's a very nice question from that point of view, because um, one of the books we also wrote in a pair programming, pair writing way. So it even leads into, yeah, the way we, we wrote the book. Uh, was one this, of was books, this your yeah. colleague, uh, John Buck? John Mack, exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've got yeah. I've got some questions about that uh, in a yeah. little bit. I'm looking forward to talking yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, uh, but I guess I guess it, it's curious to me, like because a program is a product of thought um, and review and things, as you were talking about, like test-driven development and things like that. What's it like when you're pairing with someone? I, I've got to I've got to admit I've never done that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think I would find it. 
I think other people would find pairing with me incredibly frustrating. Um, uh, what? How, Why do you how, think so? Uh, because I'm I'm opinionated and demanding and and short uh -huh. short tempered uh -huh. when I think I'm right. Um, <laughs> which I know I think that are probably traits that many people who you know I mean not that I do a lot of programming myself but you know I, I think that a lot of people could probably sympathize with being like that. How do how do you work out a relationship? For example, if you're pair program and you have a a real disagreement about what the next step is, do you have a project manager that you can appeal to? How do you, mm -hmm. how, do you, do, is it this bickering kind of part of that relationship and just the mm -hmm. way you get along? So the, the very first thing is, and I know you didn't ask about that, but pair programming works best if people are kind of on the same level. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to do anything with really education or training or mentoring although you you learn a lot by doing it together because it, it starts already the one person uses the, the the programming environment in a different way than the other one or knows some shortcuts the other one doesn't know or whatever something like that right yeah. but whenever you have like a, a big difference in in knowledge then it gets really frustrating for both because on the one hand the one who knows maybe less hardly dares to to ask a question because if, if that's me i cannot really follow on what you are doing here and so i can't really ask anything and on the other hand if we we stay now in this uh, scenario you would be very frustrated for me slowing you down you know, and, and that's kind of the the premise that we are, I don't know, on eye side, on eye level here, so that we are really kind of in the same same space. I, yeah. I think I see what you're saying. That's a really good description of it. I think I would be kind of like trying to write with someone. You 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 better share the same vocabulary. Yes. If one mm -hmm. person knows a lot of words that the other person doesn't know. Do uh, you spend all your time explaining yourself and the other person spends all their time being humiliated? Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's really interesting. And so in your, in your work, I mean, have you, when you, when you get a contract or something like that, are you tasked with pairing people together? So the way I'm working right now has changed a lot than to what I was talking so far about. So I'm not programming anymore. Okay. So the, the thing is more that I, well, if this is what the team wants to do, I'm not somebody who pushes stuff on them. So, but if they, I, I invite them to try it out and then help them to get along. But if the team says, well, we, we don't do that, then, they don't do it. Yet pairing in general, I think, is just such a powerful concept for many things. As I said, like writing, but also speaking or running a workshop together or coaching or any kind of thing. So so in, in the way I'm working now is really more, um, well, sometimes on the team level ensuring that the teams are pulling together so it's most often that i'm not working with one team but with many and often they are also distributed and it's kind of the what can we do that we really build this one system and not as many as we are people or sites or anything like that and on the other hand um helping companies to allow agility on the organizational level 
because often now we see that um, even if we stay in software, that uh, the teams are not as successful as they can be because the organizations are often too slow. And that goes back to what Mark and Tristan said, what you quoted already, that com- some companies are struggling with what does digitalization really mean and how do we um, speed up? Yeah, it's interesting. You draw a connection in your writing, I think, if I gather correctly, between um, sort of incumbent hierarchical forms of Mm -hmm. organization and how this Mm -hmm. isn't really compatible with uh, an an agile, both in the uppercase A and the lowercase A Mm -hmm. kind of sense of the term. Um, a form of, of operating. And I was wondering if you could, you could talk a little bit about that. What, what is it about programming now that's not really compatible with the conventional hierarchical organizational structures from companies? Well, I, I would... So, first of all, the, the, the book you are referring to, it's not so much about programming because we think it's beyond IT, yet still things have also changed in programming, which is like when I started, okay, we worked in teams, but not so much. It was really more an individual thing. And also the, I would say most of the problems were much smaller and it was way easier to um, decide up front what is it we want to do and what, what is it that the customer needs and what the market needs, whereas now it's, things are just changing so fast and, and there are new markets just jumping up every day and you have to deal with it and maybe what you thought your product should do today is tomorrow really something else. And the same is true then not only with like a market, but also with uh, existing customers, they learn something else and then they find, well, your product is really outdated here. It's not really doing this anymore, which means we have to be very fast and and, and flexible. And that's actually for me more the the definition of agile. So really more in a literal sense, flexible, nimble, fast, responsive, and all of that um, to, to deal with these changing needs and with that complexity that's there and, and still being able as a team to really deliver something and deliver that fast again. And that requires, for example, fast decision-making. Now coming back to your question, what does it do with the, with the company or with, with an organization? Well, if a team is not empowered to make a decision, but it has to go the hierarchy up and then again down, then maybe you are really too slow. For, for some of those decisions. That reminds me, when it comes to decision-making, one thing you write about is um, consent decision-making. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think I'm quoting a, a, from your colleague, John Buck. He said, um, a consent decision is not one that you n- unite with or agree with, but one that you can accept or tolerate. You consent if you have no reasoned and paramount objection to a policy proposal, um, end quote. And I've got to say, this makes complete sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've kind of always, when I've been working in teams, operated on this way. Mm-hmm. And my personal experience with it, although I didn't have the term consent decision making, has been that there's a certain type of person that finds this intensely frustrating and difficult. Because when you say, I disagree with you, but I'll, mm-hmm. I'll do it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they often think that you're being passive aggressive or that like, you're, you're not really going to try and you're actually going to undermine it. Whereas like to me, I, I completely understand like it's a team. I'm not going to get to decide everything. 
Um, mm-hmm. Often I'm going to be, I mean, you know, often I'm going to be doing things in my job and in my life that aren't ideal or what I want ideally to happen. But, you know, we're making these compromises all the time. But I think a lot of people really need, they, they really need people to agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how, how, what's it like trying to convince someone of this I, idea when they're just, they're just instincts tell them that, when someone says they disagree, it means they're not going to cooperate. Mm-hmm. So I think the way things are phrased are very important. And it starts with that um, if we make a decision based on consent, it's very clear that we are not looking for the best possible decision. We are looking for a decision, and that's also quoting John Buck, that's good enough for now, safe enough to try. Hmm. And and that's a, a key thing because as soon as we start looking for the best possible decision, we probably will never get done deciding because we will only know if it's the best possible decision after the fact in hindsight, right? Before you, you really never know. And with this more open mind, it's, it's much easier. Then the other thing is we, we ask, well, most often we don't, ask for, well, can you accept it or so, but we ask, do you have this paramount objection? And that means, do you think if we go that way that our joint goal is put at risk? Mm. Which undermines again or emphasizes that good enough for now, safe enough to try, right? Because if we would start saying, also, can you accept it? Or do you agree would be the the more consensus uh, question, then, well, there's always something else. Almost everyone has something where they think, oh, it could be better this way or that way. But that's not the question. The question is, is this something that would hinder us reaching our goal? And if it does, then we really want to hear about that because probably we should change our decision. Which, which also makes a, a huge difference to what I, what I know from other ways of decision-making because if somebody has an objection, then this objection is really welcomed by everyone who is involved in that decision-making process because we all know it will be a better decision. And we have overlooked something. And it's not that we try to, to pull that person over and try to convince that that person is wrong and should better go with the whatever majority or so. No, if the objection is there, it's our all objection and, and we want to solve it because we want to reach that goal. It's really interesting, the um, the use of the term consent in this as well. I, I, I mean, maybe I'm overly sensitive to the language, but I see a connection p- between that and the kind of non-hierarchical form of organizing because consent is an almost a kind of patronizing term in some ways like imagine some there's a certain type of boss who if an employee said i consent to your decision mm-hmm. uh, they would be horribly offended they would say you should submit to my decision not not consent mm-hmm. to it and so i that's mm-hmm. the point i'd really like that 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 nuance in in that Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, way of talking about it, and I guess I wanted to ask you one one question that one one topic that's come up on this podcast since I talked to so many people in in I, I know your book isn't just about IT, but um, in the IT world is is domain specific um, understanding 
something that's necessary when you're dealing with software. So, for example, some companies operate on a, a model where executives actually shouldn't have any domain-specific expertise, that they're supposed to be operating at a kind of level where they understand how businesses work, but what's actually being done in the business isn't particularly important to them. And many people I've spoken to think that this actually isn't compatible if your business has anything to do with software whatsoever, and it, and it does now. So, for example, um, uh, if you really don't understand software at all, can you can you be in charge of a company where that's driven by software? I think this question is right on to what we are seeing right now. And um, I was very impressed when, I think it's five years ago, a guy from BMW told me, so one of the managers, I think not top, but still, he said to me, you know, we think of BMW as a software company now. And probably not everyone in BMW agreed at the time, and probably they don't, not everyone agrees right now, right? Um, and putting this a step further, I think it was like two years ago when I heard one of the, hmm, C, I don't know, CXOs, some whatever, from ING, an international bank. And that person said that he is absolutely sure that the next CEO will be somebody from IT because of digitalization and because we think somebody uh, has to understand what software is about if we really want to make that step into digitalization. So, and and I agree with that, actually. And um, I think it's difficult if you don't understand anything about software. However, I also find it difficult if you have only people who come from that field. So my, my main answer to the question is you need diversity. Because otherwise, you are also blind with only looking at the kind of software you have seen or the product, how it should be. And you are not really exploring new fields. It's interesting you bring up diversity. Um, one thing that you write about is um, the question of whether people should, companies should should define jobs or should they look for talented people. Mm -hmm. And then if you can, if you in the war for talent, if you can manage to grab a talented person, then see what they can do. Mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, mm -hmm. have, you, have you seen companies um, carry out that kind of tactic successfully? Yeah, there are companies now now exploring that more, that they are not saying, well, we have a job description and we put those people then in, in this box. And and I'm pretty sure we see this, we will see this more and more. And exactly what you said, also because of the war of talent, yet also because people want to grow and if they are in a box, then they sit in that box and have no real possibility to grow well, except for the given career path and that might speak to them or not. But if you really look at what are the, where are the interests and, and what's possible for the individual person, it's again, better for the whole company. It's again, speaking of digitalization and, and the need for speed in innovation, I, I I think over time, 
but we we will hardly see anything else. And back to your question, I've I've seen companies doing that, but there are only a few right now. So it's not a common thing, and it's not a common thing for like large companies right now. It's more companies that are started successful and they are growing. So we're speaking of, for example, the Spotify's companies right. like that. right. Yeah, you've you've, yeah. Written, you've written about Spotify. Can you talk a little bit about how how they work? Um, well, that's that's really an interesting thing because it, at least in the actual field, so many people refer to Spotify as well. That's the Spotify model, and we should use that. And a lot of companies do, and then they rename their their units and the, the, all the, the the structure they have in the company, and then they speak about squats and tribes and guilds and uh, use all those terms that Spotify came up with. Sometimes, well, they didn't really change much other than using that new terminology, so which is maybe already a, a bit difficult. But the, the biggest problem is that they didn't understand what the Spotify model, in quotes, really is because there is not really such a thing as a Spotify model. The thing is that they keep changing and look at what do we need right now and then the whole company keeps really permanently changing itself. And so whatever people hear about, well, yeah, you have squats and tribes and blah, whatever, this is always uh, a snapshot from a momentum and it's not something that's lasting long because the key thing is to yeah stay be in the flow and 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 change with the needs and that's the spotify model if you will but it's not a fixed model right um on the subject of your i, I believe it's your latest book the one you wrote yeah. with your colleague john buck um yeah uh, so um you talk about the bossa nova model and i really like the way you talk about how you know this is um <laughs> Uh, a term that means new wave, uh, and it's also a form of music, and it's also a form of dance, and it's it's sort of very like intricate the way you use these these this meta this metaphor to fit different things together. But I wanted to kind of break it down a little bit, and so uh, the bossa part, uh, the first part of the the acronym is beyond budgeting. Um, what what's that? So beyond budgeting has been created by CFOs, so it's not a like a con consulting thing, what we see in other worlds, that new stuff is invented by consultants observing something. So this is really from within corporations. And they figured that the way budgeting is traditionally done is not helpful for organizations. And therefore, they are on the one hand suggesting a different way. And on the other hand, they also have implemented different ways and they saw that this is way more successful. And and just like maybe one of the examples where they say like, oh, this isn't really working. So... If uh, if you have that yearly budgeting approach and somebody is applying for some money for because, well, I want to do that project and therefore I'm applying for a, a bucket full of money and if I'm lucky, I'm getting it. Now, if the, the market is changing, for example, it changes in the way that I don't need that anymore because that project is really useless now. 
then what's typically is happening that the money is not returned into the big pot. It's more like, okay, I will spend it anyway, because if I would return it, then next time I'm asking for money, I will not get that much. Everyone would say, oh, this is you again. We know she only needs a tenth of what she's asking for. And also the other way around, if the market is changing and it's really uh, very emergent and I would need like double as much as I would think, as I thought at the beginning of the, the budgeting process, well, I cannot do this because all the money has been distributed and it's gone and I can't really act on the new market needs. And, and both ways are not good for the company in general because in both times you are losing money. And uh, so one of their their answers is to be more flexible with with the budgeting process and not doing yearly, yearly budgeting. However, having said that, the the I think otherwise they would be really angry with me. <laughs> I have to add that the term beyond budgeting is in that sense maybe a little bit misleading because it's not about budgeting only. It is also um, a different management style which is also like in Agile, more about empowering people, more about having autonomous self-organizing teams. And um, so it fits pretty well with, with Agile, but it focuses more on the management leadership side and not so much, well, Agile comes from software development and it's, it's just really good in this area. Right. Uh, thanks for that description. That's really, that's really clear. You, you reminded me of an example of a friend of mine who was um, going through a hard time in his career a few years ago, and he had a project manager diploma of some kind, and he got a job with a big company that was very good at getting government contracts mm -hmm. uh, and not so good at making software. Uh, mm -hmm. Two different, two different skill sets. They're not mutually exclusive, but they don't always go together. Um, and he got the job and it was a six month contract or something like that. And he realized when he got it, that he didn't have anything to do. Um, yeah. the only reason mm -hmm. his position existed was because they'd won a budget that included a space for an employee at his right. pay grade. Um, yeah. And no one wanted to cut it because then it's just like, it, it, it meant you just get less money next round. Right. Um, right. Uh, and so it's kind of like one of these examples I, that I don't know, I, I find fascinating where people think they're being kind of hard ass. Like, you know, here's, here's, here's your budget numbers, Johnson, stick to them. But actually it ends up being this kind of really weak and kind of sad way of, of trying and, and path, sort of a, a born, like born to fail kind of way of going mm -hmm. about things because it's actually, it's driven by a kind of dollars and cents approach that's all cost-based and not kind of profit center based. You don't look at people as ways of getting stuff. You look at people as, you know, sinks for money. Um, That's true. And you're also not looking at the overall success of the company. It, it doesn't matter anymore. It's more like, yeah, okay, we have the money put in here and therefore it will be spent here. Yeah. And, and, and I think it, I think it goes, I mean, I haven't worked in an environment like this, but it, it seems to go along with a, a sort of culture where it's like, you know, you, you, you're, if you're a middle manager or, or a manager or an executive and you say, well, I've got 20 people underneath me. How many people do you have underneath yeah, you? Right. Uh, and right. it's like, well, what, but what are you achieving? What, yeah. what are you trying to actually do? Are you actually achieving those goals? And it's, again, it's kind of like, it's funny that this discourse gets represented as kind of macho and, and tough when really it's actually like, 
profoundly pathetic. Yeah. Um, sorry, yeah. that, that, that sorry to give my No, yeah, makes completely but, sense. Um, yeah. Uh, and now that you've actually brought up the goals thing, I really need to, to add that, which is another beyond budgeting thing. So actually targets is more the thing. I, which I also find such a strong example. So if people, well, units, whatever, but people getting targets, then they aim for achieving them. Let's say, think I'm a, a salesperson because sales is the best example for reaching their targets, which is also true for other people, but just it speaks better. And my target is I have to sell a hundred of whatever we are selling. And then imagine at the end of the year i really reached it and i sold that hundred then well i get my bonus that's cool i'm I'm really happy but what happens if my competitor has sold 200s of the competitive product then those hundred are really meaningless and on the other hand if the competitor has maybe sold only 20 then the hundreds are really a great number so the One of the other key thing around beyond budgeting is that, well, maybe fixed targets is not such a good idea because they don't tell a lot. What we need is relative targets. Yeah, that's really interesting. You just reminded me of um, a kind of infamous example that's sort of an an ongoing um, scandal in the United States right now with the bank Wells Fargo. Um, Oh, right. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard of this where basically Mm -hmm. there was this top-down pressure sales culture that resulted in employees creating fake bank, well, creating bank accounts for customers that the customers didn't know about in order mm-hmm. to reach, reach targets. And of course, you know, that fortunately they ended up being fined, I think in the, in the billions for it. Um, and yeah, there would have been people along the way making their quarterly numbers and, and getting their, their bonuses um, right. and, you know, passing their performance reviews. But really ultimately the company was undermining itself um, in its, in its, pursuit of these of these sort of um overly straightforward targets mm-hmm. perhaps is one mm-hmm. way of putting it um one, one thing i moving on to the next um yeah. uh, part of the acronym uh, in bossa uh, and in nova um is open space and mm-hmm. i confess this is something i've not heard about before um can you mm-hmm. can you um explain what open what open space is Mm-hmm. Uh, so first of all, it gives me a chance to correct your introduction because ah. at the beginning you said the the title of the book and you referred to open source instead of open space. Oh, did I say that? Oh, <laughs> yes, oh, which no. which happens from time to time. But um, open space is actually a facilitation technique, and um, so this is where it's coming from. And maybe yeah, I go through that. So the the key idea is that. If you go to a conference, very often you find that after the conference, you feel, oh, the best times I had were really in the breaks because there had the, I had the chance to connect to people and we talked these topics through and we really were diving into something and explored something and so on. And so there's Harrison Owen, who is the, the originator of Open Space, and he just thought okay what what makes that difference and then also organize conferences around that difference and the difference is if you think about um, your pre-conversations during conferences uh, the first thing is it just starts whenever people feel like we are starting talking about that topic it's not that somebody's waiting oh it's not 10 yet and so we should wait 
another five minutes till we can start, right? It's just starting. Then the next thing is, which is a bit related, well, whoever is there are the right people. We are not waiting till, I don't know, Len is coming along because we think he should really part, be part of that discussion. We just get started because it's a break session, right? It's session in quotes here. And um, similarly, as how it starts, it also just ends whenever people feel like, oh, we're done with that topic, maybe we move on to the next topic over our coffee conversation. And uh, another really key thing, which is called, which is a law, which best known as the law of two feet. Now it's often called as the law of um, responsibility and mobility. And it means as in a coffee break conversation, if I feel I'm not, well, let's say it basically, I'm not interested in that anymore and nobody is interested in what I'm saying, then probably I look for another coffee and move on to the next table and talk there. And so it, it basically says, if I'm not learning anything else anymore and I'm not contributing to other people's learning, then maybe it's the time to move on, which is actually a great concept also for every kind of meeting. So, and, and I use this in, in companies as well, right? And then there is like, yeah, wherever it happens is the right place. So also the location doesn't really matter. Again, in a coffee conversation, it, we don't need a room. Maybe we do. And so we move on and go to a room, but maybe we are just wherever we are, right? Um, and then in general, whatever happens is the only thing that could, which is also true. Maybe at first I go there and we, we chat over coffee and we think like, oh, we really want to talk about microservices, digitalization, whatever. And then we get tracked away and we talk about something else and maybe that's the right thing to do. It, it was the correct thing. So, and that's the, the. Yeah, so open space as a facilitation technique. Now, there are companies who run strategically like that. Oh, right, and I missed uh, another key thing to it. If you have a, a run a conference that way with open space, so going back to the facilitation, what you're doing is you provide a space and everyone can suggest a topic and if there are people who are interested in that topic, they will meet and talk about it. And if nobody is interested, nobody will talk about it. But everyone is invited to suggest just any kind of topic. And in that way, we know companies who, who are strategically run by that. So everyone can suggest a new feature for the product or a new product. And if there are enough people who also believe in that, then they will join that person and say, oh, well, let's, let's put this on. And it's like a cool idea. And if nobody comes along, well, then maybe it's not such a good idea and we are not doing it. So which has a very, on the one hand, innovative power, because it's really every person in the company bring, can bring the creativity and innovation to, to the spot. And on the other hand, it's also um, working with the passion of people, things they really want to do and what they really strongly believe in. And they put this forward and work on that and not on 
something, well, maybe now going back to, to be on budgeting, where just somebody said, oh, we have that money to spend for and whatever. It's not necessary, but this is the, the bucket the money is in. It's, um, it's really interesting. You, you, bring a, you brought up passion and I believe also responsibility. Um, and mm-hmm. I think it, it's uh, that this is sort of, I'm, I'm leading into my next question, but one of the themes in, in uh, what you're talking about is uh, that, you know, in a sense, people should be granted a lot more kind of autonomy uh, in yeah. their workplace. But this is, of course, contingent on trusting them um, to behave responsibly uh, and also to contribute responsibly uh, as part of a group. And so the next the next part of the acronym is, I believe, sociocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little, I, I've read a little bit about it. I'm sure people listening have mm-hmm. heard, heard the term before, but if you could t- talk a little bit about what sociocracy is, how, how it works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sociocracy um, is from the terminology a little bit related to democracy. Um, whereas democracy means like we, well, it's the demos, so the, the mass of people, whereas socios means we are working with people we have a relation to. And so sociocracy, if you will, which is not the correct really way of explaining it, but still is a kind of democracy for organizations because they are the people have a relationship with each other. And it comes with um, also only a few principles. And one of them we have talked already about, which is the consent decision-making, which is a very um, core, core thing to sociocracy that you decide based on consent and, based on consent, actually the policy decisions you're making. So not anything that's operational, you just do this, whatever works well, but all policy decisions you make by consent, meaning everyone has a voice, everyone can object if, so everyone who is involved in that decision and, and yeah, um, I can object as soon as that person thinks our Joint goal is at risk again. So what we talked about earlier. So that's that's mm-hmm. the one thing, and it's different from a democratic decision where the the voice of the minority is ignored. Well, and speaking of the uh, sometimes even of the majority, as I've learned in your last elections. So it's it's different there because you really hear all the voices and everyone cannot check right. So that's the the. One thing, consent decision-making. Another really big thing is called double linking. And double linking works with, first of all, with uh, with a hierarchy. So we have, a, if you think of a whatever company and there is a hierarchy in place, the, the problem with the hierarchy is that the, the people who have been appointed as managers for the next lower level they're on the one hand appointed top-down only, and on the other hand, also because of that, typically mainly responsible for the top-down in flow of information and decision-making and ensuring people are really aligned and whatever. So it's always kind of this direction. However, there is also that that thing in between which very we refer to middle managers or even more extreme being in a sandwich position is a term that's often used for middle managers. And the 
the reason why the sandwich position is, is used as a term is because those people have to ensure both the top-down and the bottom-up things. So they also represent the, the group they are responsible for higher up, but also have to ensure that whatever has been decided top-down is really carried on or carried out for that level unit. And now, so Circusy says, that's actually a bad idea to put people in such a sandwich position. We have to sort this out or separate this out. So we have on the one hand, the top-down link, which is just a regular, just as the hierarchy. So you can start where you are with your company. So you have your managers in place and everything is fine. But then you have on every level of the hierarchy, uh, you have also an election going on and people elect a representative for them. And that representative is then representing that team group unit one level higher up and has exactly the same say as the person that has been appointed top down. And same say, this goes now back again to decisions by consent. So the representative can in the same way object as the top down, the, the manager that has been appointed. And is this a, is this a uh, popular form of management and organization in German companies? No, it's not popular. It's a bit more popular maybe in the Netherlands. That's where it's originated. Um, it is something more people know about right now because um, sociocracy is kind of at the core of holacracy, where, which, where people, well, at least in some fields, are talking about. Holacracy put has put way more stuff on it. So it's, it's just, I don't know, well, my opinion is it's just too much and it's too prescriptive and too rigid and it's, it lost that simplicity with only those few principles because it's now having way more. And so sociocracy is kind of easier to apply. However, with holacracy, more people have heard about double linking and are also trying it but i would say it's it's really mainly in the netherlands it's a lot used in non-profit areas so non-profit organizations they are more and more using it um also outside the netherlands and also outside the netherlands there are companies exploring it and, and experimenting with it and in germany maybe just the one more thing what we have is we have a typical thing for especially large companies, we have elected representatives, so the unions, for example, oh, right? Is this, is this related to works councils as well? That exactly, yeah. exactly. However, there it means the the whole staff is electing some representatives, and those are then sitting at the very top, which is which is good because there is there are the representatives. But the difference with the double link is that you have on every level in the hierarchy representatives, which can then also influence all the decisions and ensure that the interests from the ones who are below are really taken care of in all of those decisions. And it's not like leaping over all those different steps in the hierarchy. Um, my last question about the subject of your book, uh, as opposed to the uh, way it was made, which I'm going to ask you about 
shortly, um, is what's the biggest challenge that you see com companies facing in 2018? <laughs> That's really, really hard. So yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure about that. Actually, I think I want to skip that question. Yeah, sure. Okay. So I okay. don't have anything on my mind right now. Okay. No. Other than digitalization. That it's, it's overly, yeah. overly broad <laughs> question, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so moving on to the uh, last part of the interview, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your process of writing. Um, and I guess my first question is, uh, you, you've been on on Lean Pub for quite some time, longer longer than most. Uh, what was it that that drew you to us when you were uh, thinking of, of writing and self publishing? Yeah, that's that's really an easy easy question because it was Johanna Rothman who is with you even much longer than I am, and when we wrote up our little book on well, which is kind of uncovering the cost of delay. Um, she just went ahead and said, well, we do it in LeanPub. And so I learned about LeanPub from her. And um, uh, did you did you publish the book in progress or did you publish it all in one in one go? Uh, we published it in progress. We started, I think we had like three chapters or something when we started publishing it. Um, and we we kept yeah, sending out updates and inform the readers whenever there was like a major, major update. Yeah, which was really good and helpful. And was gathering feedback from readers something that you have engaged in in your books? We did that. However, to be very honest, it didn't really work out just with LeanPub. So hoping for any kind of readers will provide feedback to us. What worked pretty well for us was that we specifically asked different kinds of people if they want to review our book and keep uh, providing the, the feedback to us. And in our case with the Bossa Nova, we really took care that we have people from all those different fields so that we get the feedback from the different perspectives. So beyond budgeting or open space and sociocracy. Awesome. Right. So you organize the kind of feedback process yourself kind of formally with people. Right. Okay. Well, formally, I'm not sure. We we said, well, here's the here you find our book, so and and gave them the link to LeanPub, and then we also said, well, the formal thing maybe was, and we really would need your feedback by then and then, and then we we worked it in, and we had actually two two big rounds of that feedback. Yeah. So. And you wrote the Bossa Nova book uh, jointly. With someone as yes. we referred to earlier. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, how did you yes. organize that? How did that work out? Yeah, so this was really an experiment and a great experiment. So as I said before, that I wrote that first Impact book with Johanna, but there it was more like just each one of us contributed like the one chapter and the other one another chapter. Now with the Bossa Nova book, it was really that John Buck and I that we Pair wrote, meaning really every single sentence that's in the book has been written by us jointly. And we did this on um, on a Google Drive. So that's where we wrote it. And it was then on me kind of explaining, John, the, the basic markdown thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, But this worked really, really good for us. And so we had um, for every chapter... A, a Google Doc then, and we transferred that then in in the Dropbox, and this is how we published. And the the thing really with 
Well, everyone who uh, who did pair program probably isn't surprised about that. But the thing with pair writing is just it's so much better from the quality wise because you have always a second pair of eye looking at it right away. So it's kind of in software, it's the same thing. You just have fewer bugs. And if you have a problem, you can fix it easier because both people know about it. It's not only sitting in one person when what you've done. So from this point of view, it was very helpful. And um, also that we had then while writing um, often a lot of discussions because we had to find out how can we best explain it or where are we heading with that book now. And um, I think you mentioned that before. So John is, uh, his home is absolutely sociocracy, whereas my home is more agile and so which also meant we we had to to find a way to exchange and have a come up with a common base really um yeah and i should mention uh that um you very generously shared a pretty detailed description of your of the, the technical details of the process of how you did this using google docs and and things like that and i will definitely put a link to that in the transcription, which we, we, we added it to our, our help center, and it was a really interesting story. Um, I guess uh, my last question for you is that the selfish one I always ask people uh, last in the interviews, which is um, if there was one thing we could build for you in LeanPub or one thing that's broken that we could fix for you, um, is there anything you can think of? That you would ask us to do okay it's a spontaneous answer and that uh, the thing that i remember most where i really struggled with was the index because there is no way to make an index and so i found a way to to do that but it really yeah took some effort and it also means whenever we have an update it's just difficult and and i understand that it's not necessary for an ebook but whenever you do a print ready, which we did, so we have it also in print, then yeah, you need that. Yeah, thank, thanks for that feedback. Um, I believe that there are plans to have a kind of robust way of making uh, indexes in um, uh, when Markua is complete. So mm-hmm. This is the mm-hmm. sort of successor to LeanPub Flavored Markdown, which was kind of a, you know, just LeanPub Flavored Markdown was a way of taking Markdown, which was for making web pages and then applying mm-hmm. it to books. And then Mark, who is kind of starting on its own um, mm-hmm. uh, fully for books and courses and things like that. And so I believe there's going to be a way of making an index. Mm-hmm. There. But yeah, thanks for that feedback. And in particular, I, I appreciate the um, point you're making about how, you know, it, it may be that for eBooks, which can be searched, um, you know, yeah. the, the class, the, the, the canonical use of an index isn't really all that useful but but obviously if you've got a print book uh it's definitely useful Um, yeah and so providing a a feature set like that is actually really important for authors um well thank you very much you know for this really great conversation um i really enjoyed it uh we covered a fair amount of ground thank you it's my pleasure thanks